You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest today is Sarah Glidden. I got it right, right? Glidden. Yeah. And uh, her new book is How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less, which is something I've been meaning to read for a while because I had the mini comics. Like, I'm going to read it when there's some more out, and then I'm going to read it when there's some more out, and then all of a sudden there wasn't going to be any more because you got a big fancy Vertigo book deal. So. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's well, fancier. Yeah, well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you to read it. <laughs> um, Sorry, I had to stop making mini comics. No, but I've read other stuff by you, and which I've all, uh, I've enjoyed all of it. Um, I even brought my copy of Syncopated. Syncopated. Syncopated. Syncopated. So we'll yak about that too. Um, let's jump into kind of the background of the book of okay. what where the book came from where the like what uh, why did you travel to Israel for 60 days well I actually it, I wasn't there for 60 days the title is a little misleading it was how to understand it in 60 days or less not how to go there okay so it I chose that title because I spent a whole lot of time before I went kind of cramming um, yeah. Just reading as much as I could, and then the it was a two week long trip that I was there for. So that was supposed to be like um, that was the last two weeks. I'll understand it um, <laughs> after I've been there for two weeks after reading all of these books and articles about it, um, which is you know ridiculous. But the idea came because I had been making just journal comics at that point um, for about like six or seven months and I was getting kind of tired of that and I knew I wanted to do a bigger project but I wasn't really sure what and then one day I was kind of arguing with my mom about Israel which is something that we do a lot and you know I was 26 I was really certain that I knew everything that I thought about Israel and why they were bad and you know all the problems that were going on over there and how I knew all the answers and she was like you know maybe before you like stick to these really strong opinions you should just go there for yourself and see it you know there's why don't you go on one of those birthright trips your time is running out you know you have to you can't go anymore when, after you're 27 so I thought actually maybe that's a good idea I'll go and I'll make a comic about it um, it'll be just like the journal comics only it'll be longer and about an extended thing so that was the plan, and I kind of thought it was going to be a little bit of a, an expose about birthright and how manipulative they are, and it would just kind of be a travelogue, and it actually ended up being a little bit more complicated than that for me, but that was the idea behind it. Like, say a little bit about the, the propaganda involved with it and kind of having the expectation of it being a very propagandist experience. Yeah. I had, I had known about Birthright since it started. Um, I was 20 when it came around. Um, and actually, I had signed up for one of the early trips, um, but it got called off because of the second intifada. And, um, you know, that was also around the same time that I started becoming really, um, have a real personal investment in the conflict. And then after that, I really wanted to avoid Birthright because it seemed to me like it was just, yeah, it was going to be propaganda, and it was, and it is. It's a tool to to 
have people go there and you have this free trip and you have a fun experience with other young people and you know when you come back you have all these positive feelings about Israel and you know at the same time I was you know, becoming more and more politically aware and I was starting to have you know some negative feelings about Israel and I really you know our, our generation is really media savvy and we just we know when we're being um, manipulated mm-hmm. and I was really not too psyched about um, going someplace and you know basically going on a big advertisement and so I avoided it so this time around when I actually decided to go I was using that and I thought well let's see how they do talk about it let's see how much they avoid talking about the conflict and uh, the trip that I chose was actually um, it's with this company called Israel Experts and they reported themselves to be a secular birthright experience that would talk about the history and politics so I thought well let's see how they talk about it if this is what you know their trip is like Let's see how they present the country. Mm-hmm. So. Is certain glutton for punishment, like knowing that you're going to have problems with this or expecting <laughs> to have problems with it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that something you normally do where it's like, I'm going to fight this and this is, I want to do this because it's going to be a fight? I wasn't really expecting a fight, but. I don't know if I knew how much I was going to be challenged by it. Mm-hmm. I kind of, um, well, the reason that I kind of studied so much before I went and read so much is because, yeah, I did, I, it was kind of like going into battle. I was armored. You know, I had this notebook that I brought with me that I both wrote in, but I also had taken lots of notes in. And I had all these maps and these Xeroxes of the Balfour Declaration and everything, and I wanted to be ready so that when they told me stuff, I could look in my notes and I could say, aha, you know, that's, that's not right. <laughs> I read something different. Um, but, yeah, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> or maybe you just wanted to go see Masada. Yeah, no, that was, it was definitely not that. <laughs> but I know, I guess, I, I like challenging situations, I suppose. I mean, they're more interesting and yeah, I'm you travel on a <laughs> There we go. You travel on a pretty regular basis. It seems like going through. Yeah. Like you mentioned, you went to Spain for a while after the 2004 elections. Yeah, I moved there for a year um, to teach English. Oh, but really, it was just kind of to escape New York for a year and escape the United States. Um. I did teach some English stuff, but yeah, I I really like traveling. I don't know; it makes me really uncomfortable, and I kind of I I think it's good for me. Yeah. I don't know. I really like the year in Spain was really hard. Um, my Spanish isn't perfect, and you know, it's kind of difficult to be out of your comfort zone and be somewhere where you don't belong. But it also no, it definitely makes it a lot easier when you come home. Yeah. Um, you feel you when you get back from a trip like that, you you feel a lot more at home than you maybe did before you left, and it makes you thankful for some of the things that you maybe take for granted. Um, what? So yeah, I really yeah, I like traveling. What kind of cult? Some of the culture shocks that you experienced 
during the birthright trip to Israel? Like, what were some things that really stood out as far as, like, not what you were expecting or really removed you from your element? For one thing, it was a maybe I was expecting something more different than what I found there. You know, we get this really you when you hear a, a lot about a place and you read about it in the news, and you only see it on the news when there's a conflict going on, mm-hmm. when there's a suicide bombing, or when there's you know a military offensive. You get this really skewed idea of what that place is like, and um, it just looks like a place where everyone's miserable all the time, and really not fair because you know people live in all of the places that would fall into that category and Israel is just you know there is stuff going on there that is unpleasant but it's also just a normal country where people live and are trying to have normal lives so you kind of imagine it you know I don't know blown out buildings and it's not it's a modern City. And, you know, a lot of people are going to say, well, of course, it's so naive to expect anything different. But, yeah, I was kind of naive. And, you know, so I, I was expecting, um, it's not that I was expecting a war zone, but no. I was surprised by just how average and normal it was and how kind of, you know, yeah, just boring some of it is. <laughs> so then also... It's a little bit shocking, the things that get boring to you there. When I first arrived, you know, you see people walking around with guns, mostly um, young IDF soldiers, mm-hmm. anyone between, basically anyone between the ages of 18 and, and 21 are soldiers, and they have their guns, and they're in the mall going shopping with their rifle slung over their back. And uh, we also had an armed guard on our trip with us. And at first, that's really, really, really jarring to see guns so up in your face like that and also to have metal detectors at the entrances to restaurants. But after a while, even after just a couple of days, you start getting used to that. So, you know, it's interesting for me what you can get used to. There's a certain um, level of complacency. Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, this is... Israel feels like a really safe place when you're there, um, and but part of that feeling of safety is, you know, the the knowledge that there's this big wall and and um, electric fence separating it from their neighbors, and that's kind of an uneasy feeling to remember that. Well, I mean, to remember why you feel safe. You're talking about this, the, the feeling safety there, and then there's also you're thinking of going to the West Bank. Was it to Ramallah? And just how that's the exact opposite, how that was, like, such an unsafe feeling, just considering it seemed to be, like, something that was rife with anxiety because there's just so many unknown factors where you kind of, in Israel, you had this safe space. Well, I felt safe in Israel because I was there. Yeah. Before I left, there were, you know, there were people here that said, you're going to Israel, isn't it dangerous? And I remember when I have um, a couple of friends, actually the friends I'm working on my next project with, they went to Israel back in 2003, and the second intifada was still kind of going on then. And I was, I was nervous for them every day. Yeah. And um, and even when I was going in 2007, people thought it might be risky. 
and then you get there and you realize that it's not. I mean, but there's risks everywhere you go. So when I was thinking of going into the West Bank, there were people who told me that it was incredibly safe. And then there were people like my friend Adon who told me that I would be crazy to go. <laughs> and that it's just too dangerous. And I think that the reality is that it would have been absolutely fine for me to go. Um, but I let, I think fear is stronger than people telling you that something is okay. You're going to pay attention to that one voice that says, it's too dangerous, don't go. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty actually um, ashamed about that. I, I really wish that I had gone. And I really wish that I hadn't just given into that fear. But and that's, that's what f- happened. That's the feeling I get from from it in the book is the fact that you're kind of like, you know, at the end there's nothing really justified not going other than your own anxieties, I guess. Yeah. So, it comes across. Um, <laughs> one of the interests you have, which is an interest of mine, it seems, is something within the kind of the antiquities era of Israel, kind of having an understanding of that. Was that a lot of re- one of your big parts of research beyond the modern political landscape? Um, it was, and that's you know, I I just love that stuff so much. And when I first started, you know, before I had decided to go on this trip, I had kind of just kept up with the news, but I didn't have any particular obsession with Israel. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about it beyond what you get in the Times. Mm-hmm. or, you know, I don't know, the New Yorker or whatever. But when I was doing my research before the trip, I started reading more recent stuff, but then I realized, okay, I have to go back to the beginning. So I did a lot of research that started out kind of with the Bible. I read the Bible. How you far know, did read you read? In the oh, Bible? The whole... I really like the laws section. That is so really? interesting. Really? Oh, man. There's some crazy laws. There are. There's about 50 or 60 laws or something, and... Probably oh, more than like, that. If a woman touches this part of a man, you have to cut off her left finger. Uh, it's just awful weird stuff. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really, like, I think the Bible is so fascinating. I mean, some people look at it as history, and you know that it's not. Um, but some things are based in history, so it's so interesting to just look at um ancient times. I well, love I mean, ancient it's... Because there's so much mystery there, and... It is a secondary source. So you refer to the writing of Josephus, mm-hmm. I think, being a secondary source. And it is a secondary source because it's writings of people, some people from, like, the Babylonia era and a mishmash of writings of previous eras. And, you know, it does provide a kind of oral history of a time. Yeah. So. And um, a lot of it, there's this, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it right now, this Douglas Rishkoff book where he talks about some of the origins of the Bible and how a lot of the stories in there are um, these parables to get people to to start doing things differently, like the story of um, Abraham and Isaac, of mm-hmm. Abraham almost killing his son. He talks about how that was actually a story that was put in the Bible because before... Uh, Judaism, there was this practice, this pagan practice of killing your firstborn child, sacrificing them to one of the gods, um, and you know <laughs> the people who wanted 
of Judaism to work, we see that this is this is just not helping us. And no. This is not working. So this story is designed to tell you, you know what, maybe you shouldn't be killing your children. <laughs> it, it's and God's it way works. of saying, hey, it's okay. You know what, don't worry about it. The feeling's <laughs> there. I know you're into <laughs> it, but you don't have to. So yeah, but it's interesting to look at the Bible as a secondary source, but it's also a primary source because, you know, you look at who the people were who were writing it and why they were writing the things that they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why are they telling you these things? And you can apply that to anything now, too. You know, why is the person who's telling you this story telling it to you? you know, it's the same with the Bible. I find it really fascinating. I'd, I'd love to do more research into that if I had time. Did you read the whole Old Testament, or just like the books of Moses? Not all of it. I skipped around. Yeah. There's some pretty painful parts. Yeah. <laughs> I took uh, I took one class in classical and biblical literature, and then I took another class in um, biblical archaeology. Mm. So, a lot of Bible reading. Yeah. Not my personal life. Just in school. What kind <laughs> of secular world am I in? That's not secular. Um, the I was really fascinated by your take on Masada and the take they had on Masada. And, I mean, there's still a lot kind of missing from what else was going on at that point. Mm-hmm. But how was the, the, the Masada experience of going up the ramp into it? The actual experience of... Climbing up the mountain? Yeah. I mean, it was a sunrise hike. It was very pleasant. Uh, I have no emotional, like, ties to Masada. Because, uh, probably because I read a lot about it beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think the story is fascinating. Um, I don't know if I should, like, describe the whole thing here, because it's kind of a long story, but um, basically... There was this fortress up there that Herod had built and abandoned, and during the one of the, the second Jewish revolt, this splinter group got chased out of Jerusalem by other Jews because they were kind of just um, way too... Um, crazy? Yeah, they <laughs> were too crazy. So they ran away to Masada, and they set up camp there and kind of just waited. And then eventually when the Romans had defeated all the other... Uh, uprisings, they came out to Masada as a kind of mopping up operation mm-hmm. and laid siege to Masada and eventually started building this ramp to just get up there because it became clear that, you know, the Sakari, this group of, um, this fanatical group had enough food and water to last forever. So they went up there and the this group, they knew that they were going to be captured, so they all decided to, well, their leader convinced everyone that they should commit suicide rather than surrender. So it's this crazy story, um, and it's really like kind of mm. awful. But it's used now, it's kind of been brushed off in the 20th century and kind of respawned into this heroic tale of people who would rather die than surrender and who are, you know, standing up for their country. But, um, it's you know, that's it's interesting because, I mean, it also ignores one of the main laws of not killing yourself. Well, they got around that by everybody... Killing each um, other? 
Yeah, they kill each other. Oh, they kill their true. families, and then oh, it's just it's just awful. <laughs> it it also so, it wasn't um, like that one's particularly you know emblematic because of you know the the drama of the space and the the the size of the tragedy, but it was one of many different similar movements at that time too. Like I remember studying the Dead Sea Scrolls, which like turns out was probably from another like splinter group of folks that just like went and started this farm and you know just disappeared off the you know the grid and just had well, all this stuff. Well, I think that stuff. was really important for Israel's founding to for people to have a physical reminder of the presence of Jews in Israel from before. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and kind of proof that there, we have a right to this land because look we were here before and we had this big conflict with the Romans and, and we lost and that's why we left but we were here and um, I think that's a lot of it mm-hmm. well I mean it, it goes along with the the narrative I think you're discussing of the or kind of relate of the rabbi in Jerusalem after the British left it's kind of like yeah you're leaving just another person coming in invading our space. Yeah. Well, you know, when you have an area of the world that's been around and had these uh, complex stratified um, mm-hmm. civilizations for so long, it, it's inevitable that there's so many, you know, empires expand and collapse. They come through and they leave and they're defeated and it's just like endless. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy place. A tragic level of of such. Um. Le monde entier est un cactus. Il est impossible de s'asseoir. Dans la vie, il y a des cactus. Moi, je me pique de le savoir. Dans leur cœur, 
what did you take from the trip that kind of altered your thinking of how you went in? Um, well, I, I think I was kind of a jerk when I went into it. You know, I like this really annoying, like, I thought I knew everything about this. You know, I, I said, like, I want to find the answers, but I thought I already knew, you know, everything there was to know about this conflict. Um, because I'm a reasonable person, and I read books, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not one of those crazy people on the internet who's always screaming about Israel. Um, so I really thought it, like, I knew a lot of things. Uh, and then just being there, and it made me realize how much I didn't know, and how kind of poisonous it is to, to be certain about something that's so complicated, you know. Yeah, and I think I was pretty judgmental, too, you know, and maybe kind of a snob. So I learned a lot about kind of what it really means to be open-minded mm-hmm. to other ideas. Um, and it's really hard. So It definitely seems like a period of growth, in a way, where, you, like, you go in with these expectations and this attitude, and you don't leave with that same kind of youthful... Um, defiance. Yeah. Does that make sense? I left a little bit broken. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs) I'm better now, but you know, when I was 26, if someone had started talking about Israel or like take pretty much any conflict or you know talking about American politics, I would be one of the first people to start, you know, talking about oh it's all this person's fault and or that group and. You know, if only they would do this, this whole problem would be solved. And, you know, these days, I'm a little bit older, and I, I really try to avoid doing that. And I think I'm a lot quieter on political issues. I kind of try to keep it to myself a little bit more and take a little bit more time to to see what, you know, the other side is thinking. Because, you know, it's really easy to think of, you know, you have your side and then you have the other side. Yeah. It's really easier to just say, oh, well, the other side, they're just crazy, and they're, and they're bad people. You know, this happens a lot um, here in the States, talking about when, you know, people who are from my political persuasion talking about uh, conservatives. Oh, you know, they're, they're just awful people. <laughs> but they're not awful people. They're just afraid, and, you know, they have, there's reasons why people think everything that they do. So you know, I think I'm a lot more likely to try and um, put myself in their shoes now, I, which doesn't mean that I have to agree with them, but I think that I try a little bit harder to understand. It's so. well, I mean, America is very divided. It's very fascinating for me as a Canadian going down to the Alternative Press Expo last week and just seeing just the signs itself of just how political things are, about how religious everything is, and it's definitely an odd world into itself right now. I don't know yeah. how to describe it. We like we like being divided. <laughs> we like it. We're used to it. It's all right. I blame uh, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. I blame Hollywood movies that have, you know, good guys and bad guys. It just trains us from a very young age to see things that way. and like It's not the way reality is, but it's really hard to to remember that sometimes. You need more like anti-heroes. More hand yeah. solos. 
Sure. <laughs> Sorry, I just made this a more comic-y radio show than normal. Yeah, don't try to talk to me about Star Wars. <laughs> Let's talk about comics. Actually, I'm just going to quickly remind folks, I'm talking to Sarah Glidden, whose uh, new book is How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. And tell me about the cartooning aspect, because um, this is the biggest project you've done obviously up to this point and kind of how was that a learning experience as a cartoonist oh well a big learning experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is totally new for me and um, I was really grateful for having the opportunity to do it and I was really grateful for Vertigo giving me um, the chance and you know kind of taking a risk on me um, but it was it was great the best job there is. <laughs> now it's, and now it's over. And now it's um, over. But I don't know um, what specifically you want me to say. Like, um, well, I mean, what were some of the sources you went to as a cartoonist that really fed into your work? Sources? Other cartoonists, influences? Mm, well, gosh, I mean, I really, I really am a big fan of. Uh, like kind of the clear line style comics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really liked Tintin when I was younger, and I think that, you know, feeds into it. And also, when I first started looking at comics, I was looking a lot at uh, comics that were drawn more in that style, like Gabrielle Bell and Kevin Huizenga, and, um, and also, you know, looking at Persepolis, too, as just both how someone can use a personal experience and talk about politics at the same time. Um, I don't know. For when I first started, I was really looking at everything. And, you know, I, when, I, when I was doing journal comics, because that's how I started out, I would kind of use the daily daily journal comic as a way to experiment with different styles. Yeah. So by the time I was ready to do this comic, I think I had finally like gotten my own style together although it's, it's still changing um, were so I don't know were you did you take a look at Israeli comics when you made this to kind of see what was going on there in that aspect no not really I hadn't maybe I should have <laughs> I, Ruchi Modan's book came out I think afterwards when I was working on it um, and you know, I thought Exit Wounds was great, and it's definitely, you know, I think there's some similarities in our style. I think um, there's a there's a visual tone to it, but I mean, her figures are a lot more abstract, I find, than yours, which are kind of more fluid. I like comics that look that look quiet. It yeah, helps me to focus on them. So a lot of the comics that I'm drawn to um, are have pretty simple line work. Um, and you, you so really I don't know if I draw that way because that's what I was always um, attracted to, mm-hmm. or if I was attracted to that stuff because that's the way that I naturally draw. But it's just the way it works out.
So tell me about uh, stumbling towards Damascus, this journey you're doing. You're gone for a month, is it? Yeah, about a month, um, which is the working title. I, I don't know if that's going to... That's the Kickstarter title? Yeah. <laughs> um, that project I'm really excited about. I'm leaving next week. Um, and what it is, is I said we'd actually been thinking about this project for a long time. Um, I'm friends with these journalists, and they're in this um, independent multimedia collective called the Common Language Project, which is based out of um, Seattle now. But I met them when I moved to New York, pretty soon after I moved to New York. And we kind of bonded over our similar politics and were really, really invested in protesting the Iraq War. We went to jail together. We had a good time. You went and to jail? Yeah, we went to... We were doing the critical mass during the Republican National Convention. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, and we got, we got arrested. That was fun. Awesome. Um, Literally, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> My mom was so proud of me. <laughs> no, she really was. I called her from jail, and she was a she was a big hippie in the sixties. She's like, "Honey, I'm so proud of you." Oh, uh, <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> I um, love that, mom. <laughs> I'm in jail. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so then, you know, I started doing comics, and they started this journalism collective, and you know. And then after a while, I was working on the Israel books, but even while I was working on it, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to do a collaboration with them, because I'm also really interested in journalism. I read the news all the time. I wanted to be a photojournalist for a period of time when I was in my early 20s. Um, And so I've always just been really fascinated by it and really um, curious about how journalists actually do their work. You know, Mm -hmm. like, when you get to a place, how do you find a translator? Who's your fixer? What kind of questions do you ask people? How many times do you interview them? Um, you know, how do you are, how do you make them comfortable for an interview? Yeah, all of this stuff that I think we just take for granted when we look at an article, which is okay. That that's what what's happening in the world, and we don't really think a lot about who's giving it to us. Mm-hmm. And we kind of think of journalism like you know this objective <laughs> report back from somewhere else, and it's. I really don't think it's effective. So that was the idea behind this project, was that I would go with them and kind of do some reporting on them and make a book about how they do what they do. So that's the idea. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. Have you, are you much into Joe Sacco's work as far as reporting in comics? I am. Yeah, I like Joe Sacco's work. Because he's a he's an interesting a, a great example. Like if you've met him, he's the most gentle, short guy with this like really <laughs> soft accent. Yeah. And when you meet no, him, you, and you just know how he can get these folks to feel comfortable with them and talk with them. Yeah, maybe I should pick his brain for the project too. Yeah, I'd love to be able to do that. I mean, that's something that I kind of want to move towards. Um, but it's kind of intimidating when you don't have a background in journalism, you know, to just kind of jump into I tried doing a little bit of that recently. Um, and it's really, it's hard mm-hmm. to go up to someone and just at, start asking them some questions or to, you know, get connected through someone else. But then to go 
kind of you're invading someone's life a little bit. You know, I'm come from Massachusetts. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm kind of a private person. So to me, the idea of going and asking someone all kinds of personal questions um, seems kind of foreign. But at the same time, I'm really interested in, you know, people's stories. So I think like I want to learn how to walk the line on that. It's it's something I still struggle with in a way, because like I'll ask questions that I wouldn't answer. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, you, interviewing sounds hard. It, it it's yeah. I mean, it's not to be all about me. <laughs> it's all about me. But um, yeah, no. W- once you're able to make that connection and kind of figure out what it is you want to do, what what do you want to ask? Why do you want to know this person? And like, I don't think you necessarily need a journalism background. Um, I don't know how much it would help within the medium you're doing other than a lot of it just learning how to connect with people and how to make that interconnectedness because a lot of the journalism education stuff is pretty much primarily focused on writing and yeah well th- I think that part's really important too mm-hmm. and you know in the kind of little experiments I've done with um, this stuff recently it's getting the courage to go up and talk to someone is hard yeah. But then once I start doing it, it's pretty easy. It's just what to do with that information, how to structure it, and also how to do the other kinds of research and knowing when you've done enough. Because something hard, and I came across this with the Israel book too, is that you can always find out more. There's always another book to read or another source to consult, and you have to know when to stop. Yeah. And there's no one who's going to tell you, okay, you know enough now, you can stop. (laughs) Now you can start writing. So it it makes you crazy. Like, there's just so much stuff out there. I think part of that, though, is, like, personal technique. Like, for me, I'm an under... Like, when I'm working on, like, when I was doing school writing, I would definitely not research as much as someone else. When I see my girlfriend working on a project, she's, you know going over all this stuff for days and days beforehand. Meanwhile, I'm one of those people that will go and sit down with a stack of books and just write with those books there and kind of, you know, pull that information as I need it. Well, I'm glad it's so easy for you. (laughs) Oh, but my grades, (laughs) my grades, Sarah. (laughs) It ain't pretty. But I'm done. So, I don't know. It's not easy. It's just, yeah, it's different. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, it's fun. I, I love writing, um, but it's it's hard. Um, so. But I think you've gone through a pretty substantive learning curve with your book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what you've done with that is a lot more than most folks will do in quite a long time. Well, hopefully I can use it and <laughs> make the next book even better. Next book. What was the decision to do the watercolor artwork on it? Oh, well, I hadn't even planned on doing it in color. Mm-hmm. Um, when Vertigo approached me about it, they had two stipulations, and one was that someone else letter it, because my lettering on the mini-comics was just atrocious and <laughs> sloppy. <laughs> I have such bad handwriting. I write in all caps when I take notes just because otherwise I can't read my own writing. So, you know, they were like, we get a letter, fine. Um, and then they were like, we also, we would we'd love it if you could do it in color. And I was like, what? I, I don't know. I, I've never really colored a comic before. And they said, oh, sure. 
you can do that. Like, look, there's these stickers on your mini comics, and they showed me the mini comics, which I had, I had taken panels and colored them in Photoshop for the covers of the mini comics, just because I, you know, I thought my book design was too bland. For yeah. Them. And um. I just need a little zip. Yeah. So I said, well, okay, I guess fine. I can do that. And I guess my thinking was, well, I'll just. I have a, a long time before I start coloring. I have like a year to write and pencil the whole thing. So in a year, I can learn how to color. And if I don't, then, you know, I'll see if Alec Longstreth wants to, you know, if I can pay him to color my book for me. The so journeyman of I was comics. working on the writing and, and drawing and kind of started experimenting with Wacom tablets and, and Photoshop. And I just, I realized I was, I'm really, really bad at computer coloring. Like, I'm awful at it, and and I don't like it. And so I was kind of freaking out, and I was asking a bunch of other cartoonists for advice on this coloring thing. And um, it was actually Renee French was like, "Well, why don't you do watercolors?" And I was like, "Well, I don't know how to watercolor, and watercoloring will take too long. And besides, I'm just not good at it." But um, and but. You know, she kind of egged me on a little bit, and um, so I decided to give it a shot. And so I got some, and I'd always been using the brick watercolors whenever I had tried to do watercolors. And then I got some tube watercolors, and it was like this really, like, uh, duh moment, like, like forehead slapping moment, because I went to school for painting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know how to paint. <laughs> and I had kind of like forgotten that. Just because I had stopped painting really abruptly um in my junior year and turned to photography and I was just absolutely so certain that certain that I would never paint again. So I kind of like blocked it out of my mind almost and then when I started using the tube watercolors it all came back and I realized that you know watercolor you know it is different than oil paint. It's mm-hmm little bit un- it's unforgiving you don't have, you have as to, much control yeah and you have to layer and you know it's a different way of thinking about putting down color but mixing the paint is exactly the same you know I had my little palette set up the same way that I had my oil painting palette set up when I was in school so I you know after a little bit of practice you know I kind of it was just like getting back on a bicycle um, and then it was really fun because I actually had really liked painting a lot um, and I, I, I was I was okay at it, so that's. I decided, yeah, I'll do the whole thing watercolors, and I'm really glad that I did. What kind of work were you doing when you're doing photography? Mostly, um, well, I was doing two things. This was when I was kind of I wanted to be a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. So I was doing some kind of um, street photography and you know kind of photojournalism type stuff. But mostly I was doing, like, um, you know, like, this large-scale-ish industrial landscape. I mean, it was it's kind of cheesy. It was art school? <laughs> yeah, it was art school. I really liked that stuff. I was kind of depressed. I don't know. I was kind of, the stuff that I thought I was doing, and I, you know, I wanted to do art photography like that that showed, you know, the the decay of man-made structures going back to nature, um, stuff like that. And, um, yeah, did that for a little while. 
and I realized that that wasn't my calling. No. Yeah. Well, you make fantastic comics, so I'm happy you switched. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm glad I got rejected from grad school. Oh. Well, you know something? You probably have a better career now and less debt. Yeah, that's true. There we go. Um, tell me about your uh, studio space. You, oh, Pizza how, Island? Yeah. Pizza Island is our shared studio space in Greenpoint. Me, Julia Wirtz, Domitio Collardi, Karen Snyder, and uh, Kate Beaton is our newest member. She just moved in about a month ago. So it's great. I love it. I had been working, um, before that I had been working out of my apartment. The apartment mm-hmm. I lived at at the time had like this kind of extra room that no one was using, so I had a studio space in there, and it was great, and it was you know, big enough to have my desk and my books, um, but it gets really lonely working on comics all day by yourself. In there were you know, days that I didn't leave the house, and it's just really isolating, and I think because of that, I would distract myself more with the internet than I should have. So, and, yeah, it's like, well, I need to reach out to some people and wonder what's happening on the message board or on Facebook. And then um, when I moved out of there, Julia and Karen and I were all talking about getting a shared studio space, so we found one, and then Domitil moved in, too. And it's just, it's really nice to have other people working there with you and to have this space that's outside your house that feels like you're going to work in the morning. Does it help your productivity level? Do you have more accomplished? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's great. And it also helps to to know when you're done for the day. Mm-hmm. You you leave the studio and you go home. Yeah, you know, and it might not be till late, but at least when you leave, you're done. And you know, I used to just when I had the studio in my apartment, I would kind of just stay there all day until I went to sleep. You know, sometimes I would watch a movie for a while or. You know, that was where I would eat my lunch and my dinner, and the, just you, you're wallowing in this studio space, and you start resenting it. It's and not- now having this other space that's separate from my the rest of my life, it feels like a nice place to go, and not something that I'm stuck in because I have nowhere else to go. Does that help in your own work, being able to bounce things off your peers in a room as well? Yeah, so much, so much. Because before, if I had a question about how something was looking, I would have to scan it and email it to people and wait for them to respond. And now I can just, you know, swivel around in my chair and ask one of the girls um, what they think. And it's it's nice we take breaks, we talk about comics, we talk about, like, the different ways that we work. Um, We we share pro tips, you know. It's, It's just awesome. I love it. Yay. Yay. Yay. Yay, Yay comics. <laughs> Yay comics. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to yak with me, Sarah. Yeah. I love it's been your a book. Pleasure. Um it was it, it was really surprising for me, like I had a rough idea of what I was getting into, but it was a lot more it's a hefty read in a good way. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's um it's kind of dense. It's yeah, but I feel like it's not it's not half ass in any way. Like you're taking on complex topics, complex emotions and able to really put it out there and work through it. So Yeah. 
Good. Oh, I'm really, really glad you liked it. Good comicking. So, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Düşüneyim, taşınayım. İnsanım hayvan değilim. Bırak beni konuşayım. Düşüneyim, taşınayım. İnsanım hayvan değilim. Bırak beni konuşayım. Düşüneyim, taşınayım. 
düşüneyim taşına yığın. 